0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalms chapter 6, and uh, amen. Thankful to be in God's Word together today. Uh, we are going to jump back in where we left off in our journey through the Psalms. Uh, we did we started that last year, uh, had a great time uh, in Psalm one through five, and now we're going to pick up in Psalm six. Uh, and we're gonna we'll keep coming back and continue from time to time, uh, taking this book a little bit, uh, a little piece by piece, and we'll keep exploring the rich and timeless truths uh, that this book of songs has to share with us. Uh, Psalm six is the first of seven what is known as penitential psalms, or, uh, in other words, they're psalms of humility and confession. How many know it's good for Christians to be humble and willing to confess? You know about that? Have you heard that somewhere? Amen. If you haven't, I'll be the first to tell you right now. Humility, being willing to confess, uh, are part of what happens when the grace of God impacts your heart. Amen. Uh, So, look, we're going to read Psalm 6 together. I hope you're there. Let's do it. It's 10 verses. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul, save me because of your loving kindness. For there is no mention of you in death, and Sheol, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly... Be ashamed. Praise God for his word. Uh, So we'll take this piece by piece. Uh, We'll start working through uh, verses one through three together. So, first of all, kind of in a general sense, here in this psalm, uh, we, we see David struggling. He's having a really hard time. He's not only suffering both physically and spiritually, but he's also sensing. Uh, perhaps the rebuke and chastening of the Lord. And so he's got a trifecta of issues going on and we see him now expressing this in in really clear, honest terms. Uh, The first thing we see is him saying, Lord, please don't rebuke me in your anger nor chasten me in your wrath. Here, David is not asking uh, for God to never discipline him. The key to understanding it is verse two. uh, He's asking him to discipline him according to his grace, right? So he says, Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't, Don't chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me. Oh, Lord, for I'm struggling. He uses the word pining in the NASB. I haven't said that word in an average conversation recently, so I figured I'd translate it for you. He's struggling, man. He's having a hard time. He's pining, okay? Uh, That's that's a weird word. So um, part of, I don't know if David totally understood all of this, but he to some degree clearly understood that the Lord's rebuke and chastening is not necessarily a bad thing. He's just asking God to do that according to his grace instead of according to his anger. Now, of course, we have the promise of, of the fact that because Christ has come, he's lived a perfect life that we couldn't, died the death that we should have, and then triumphantly risen from the grave. We don't really need to make this request because we know that the wrath and anger of God was poured out on Christ at the cross, that if he chastens and disciplines us, this is not him uh, in, in anger toward us. It is, it is the actions of a loving father. Uh, I'll give you a verse for that. It's Hebrews 12, verse 7. It says this, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Um, there are those that exist, but it's not normally in a, in a household where the father really loves the children, or, or the mother for that matter. Uh, so the premise I would pull down from that, or out of that, is this, and then I'll qualify it. God's anger... Is because of God's love. God's anger is because of God's love. Think about this with me. I'm gonna I'm gonna spin you a scenario. Try to jump in here with me. I want you to imagine that you were telling a very close friend of yours that you could not spend time with them because you were working a lot, right? They keep calling you, they're sending you texts. Hey, can can you hang out this day? Can you do this day? No, I'm working, no, I'm working, I gotta work. Uh, But really, that that wasn't the truth at all. What you'd been doing every single time they tried to reach out to you, you were heading down to the casino, uh, and now, because of that, you're in financial ruin. And because of that, God brings conviction by his spirit. You realize you have a gambling addiction that is ruining your life and that you need to tell the truth, all right? So we're turning the corner, but imagine you come and you tell your friend. You say to them, listen, I've been lying to you for months. You tell them, I need help. And, and you ask them to forgive you. Here's my question. If their response was something along the lines of, okay, well, it's no big deal, and then they're quick to just kind of change the subject and want to move on, what what would that communicate to you? If that was me in that scenario, it would communicate to me that they don't really care that much, right? That they, if I'm saying, hey, I've lied to you, I've been lying to you for months, I've been making excuses, and I've actually been going and doing this other thing, I would think that if if our relationship meant something, I'm expecting frustra- minimally frustration from them and maybe some anger, right? Maybe you don't like this because um, our culture has been spinning us this lie continually that love demands acceptance of all things. But here's the thing. Uh, if I'm friends with you, don't lie to me, okay? Because we're supposed to be friends and we're supposed to have love between us. And if I find out that you have been lying to me, I, I, I'm even if I'm angry, I'm going to I'm going to be angry, but then I'm also going to want to talk about it more. Okay, so you said you've been lying to me. I'm not happy about that. We're supposed to be friends, man. Don't do that. But okay, now you're also telling me part of the reason you're lying to me is you're struggling. Okay, how do I help? Let me get in here and figure out what love in this situation is going to look like. Am I, how do I keep you accountable? How do I hold your hand through this struggle and get you free? Okay? Uh, I think that's, to me, that makes sense, and I see I see anger as evidence of love and real relationship in that scenario. To be indifferent about it's kind of, that, that, to me that would be a red flag. That they, why isn't that bothering them, right? Uh, the, the same is true for parents, right? So, um, I, I was in the backyard the other day and the kids were out there with me. Lucy was over doing something in the back corner and uh, the gate was open and I was about to head around the front of the house and along that side of the house is where our, our AC unit is and Max got out ahead of me because I said I'm going down on the truck for something so he Anytime there's a truck involved, he wants to be there, so he heads that way ahead of me, gets around the corner, and so I come around the corner, and um, he he has noticed that uh, there is air being pushed up out of that AC unit, and there's a mechanical noise, and so he, you know, like a moth to flame, you know, he's supposed to be heading to the truck, but now he's over there, and I come around the corner, and dude has his fingers down in the fins of the metal, like past, he's... He's two knuckles deep, right? And probably the only thing that saved him, is he's got chubby fingers like his dad, right? So, by God's grace, he's got fat little fingers, and they didn't go any farther. So I come around the corner, and um, you know, I, I I don't know what Modern Parenting Magazine would tell me to do so in a very calm, gentle voice. Oh, Max, don't do that! Don't do that, buddy. You, understand something, friends? I love my kid. And I don't want him um, to chop his fingers off in the AC unit and potentially bleed out in front of me. So I rounded that corner, and you better believe the daddest dad voice you've ever heard, right? The dad voice I've been told that, you know, I can speak in a room where there's children and everybody else's kids will listen, and half the time the adults will snap to attention. The (laughs) deepest dad voice you've ever heard, Maximus, stop it right now. Get your fingers out of that air conditioner. And I took him, explained to him, listen, dude, that's a spinning blade. That will cut your fingers off, bro. Here's my question. I, was, I came around the corner, and, and instantly I was concerned for his safety, but I'm all, I was angry. And that, that came out quick, and that response is why, right? Because here, here's my question. If I, if I came around the corner, I was like, you know, he really looks like he's having fun. <laughs> I'm not going to bother him, right? I, I don't know if, I don't, if you're, it, honestly, if you live in some sick, twisted world where that's what love looks like in that situation, please let, let me just be the one to shake you today. That's, that's not what it looks like. I yelled at that boy. And you better believe, those fingers came right up out of there, and that lip started quivering, right? The one that, it, it makes it hard. I'm not saying it's easy to do this to him, because he's got, he's got a refugee face, man, that will, you want to just do whatever it is he's asking you to do and, and not ever yell at him again. But I yelled at him. I did. I got angry. And he knew it. It was for his good. And I was angry because I care for him and because I love him. Anger is part of the package when there's love and real concern between in any relationship, whether it be a friend or that, between uh, a parent and their child. And that's part of the premise I'm trying to drive home for you is that God's anger is because of God's love. It is. Sometimes he sees you with your finger in the AC, right? Whatever that looks like for you, whatever silly disobedience you've decided is, is better than what it is God's asked you to do or not do. And so he may yell and get your attention. David, obviously, is in a situation here to some degree. We don't get details, but he understands that something he's done or doing um, is is not making the Lord happy, and he's feeling the the chastening of that. He's asking for God's grace in the midst of it, which is clearly permissible. However, uh, we must understand that God chastens and disciplines sons and daughters that he loves because he's a good dad. He's a loving father. He's not absentee or indifferent to us, and I'm so thankful for that. Because sometimes I need someone to yell at me and tell me to get my fingers out of the AC. Because I don't always make the right decision on my own. I know some of you do, but I need God to chasten me sometimes. I need his loving discipline. Um, and I don't see that as evidence he doesn't love me, but quite the opposite. And you might be thinking, well, I, I don't want to serve a God who gets angry. I like precious, you know, I like precious moments, Jesus. Um, I like, you know, white robe with the kids and the pet and the lambs, Jesus. That's the one I've seen, and that's the one I like. And I would just, friend, I would say to you, if if that's what you're, if that's where you're at, if you if you don't want to serve a God who gets angry, if you don't like a Jesus that might get angry, then you have to realize that means you don't want to serve a God that's loving either. If God is indifferent and unloving, He will have no reason to be angry with us. It won't cause, and that's the thing we need to understand that God is. I think sometimes we, we compartmentalize God's emotions in an unfair way, in a way that's not true for us, right? God can be angry in the midst of his love. It's like He doesn't have to turn one off to have the other, and, and quite possibly, and I would say I, I'm convinced of it, often his anger, if, he, if he's angry with me, if he's frustrated with me, it's because he loves me. If he didn't care about me, he'd be indifferent. He wouldn't care that I'm over here doing this thing or whatever that's going to lead to that I think is going to lead to happiness, but is actually going to lead to my destruction. He would just let me be. But he's not indifferent towards me because he does love me passionately and he's willing to deal with me as a father deals with a son. And for that, I'm really, really grateful. If you don't want to serve a God that gets angry, you don't want to serve a God that's loving. You could have an indifferent, aloof kind of, he'd put everything together, set it spinning and step back just to let it, let it go, but that's not the kind of God we have. We have a God that's intimately involved with the details of our life, understands what's going on, sees what's happening in the chambers of our heart way down deep. He knows better what's going on here even than we do. And he's going to deal with us based on that. And I'm so thankful. I hope you are too. Amen. Amen. Um, commenting around this subject, uh, Spurgeon had this to say. So we may pray that the chastisements of our gracious God, if they may not be entirely removed, may at least be sweetened by the consciousness that they are not in anger but in his dear covenant love. Amen. Even though the chastisement of God is because of his love, Romans 8.1 is still true for we are his children because I think to some degree we could overcorrect on this and end up that if we think we are experiencing the discipline or chastisement of the Lord, we could end up just kind of settling into um, wallowing in self-pity and, and just I'm just going to be crushed underneath the weight of, of God's discipline. And that that also isn't true. Romans 8.1 tells us that um, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And so it is humble and right to acknowledge God's love in disciplining us and to receive that and be thankful for it. Uh, but... What we see here is that we are also allowed to ask him to be gracious to us in the midst of it. I don't think God wants us to just settle in. If we realize, okay, some of what I'm experiencing here, whether it it feels like distance from God or just this agitation in, in, in my soul, if I'm realizing, okay, this... By the Spirit of God, I'm understanding. I, I am experiencing the discipline of God. I don't think what he wants us to do is just go, hmm, right, and Eeyore it. And, oh, well, God's mad at me, and I'm just going to stay that way forever. I think what we need to do is come to God like David did, press in and say, God, I'm struggling. God, this, that, I, I understand that I'm sinning, and I realize now I see my error, but please, Lord, be gracious with me. Help me. Restore me. God, restore me to right relationship. Help me to understand. Help me to see all that is in this so that I may repent of it and, and be set free to serve you well. Right? So don't just kind of settle into the Lord's mad at me and it's going to stay that way. Because of Jesus, that's not how it goes. Right? There's always hope because of Christ, there's always access to God the Father. Um, I didn't scowl at Max the whole rest of the day because of the chubby fingers in the air conditioner situation. Right? I dealt with it, uh, explained to him what was going on, told him I loved him. He said, I love you too. And off we went, you know whatever we were doing, down to the truck and back up and throwing mulch at each other or whatever we did to have fun the rest of the day. So it was cool, right? Um, it didn't it didn't have to be a long-term rift in our relationship. That I'm thankful for. Uh, that brings us to verse 3, right? So he says, And my soul is greatly dismayed, but you, O Lord, how long? Uh, we see here that David is struggling, it seems, both physically and spiritually. At uh, the end of verse 2, he says, Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. So, all the way to the fact, and it seems in this situation, which is oftentimes the case, um, I don't know which came first. If he was spiritually downcast, then that began to affect him physically, or if he was having physical issues that that affected him spiritually, those can oftentimes be tied together. Not always, but many times they are. Um, And the most often asked question in the scriptures is the one we see here. Oh Lord, how long? Um, What we need to realize is, in the midst of this struggling and and when we find ourselves in the same place that David finds himself, whether you're struggling with one of those issues, whether you're struggling physically or spiritually or both at the same time, um, that sometimes God brings healing and relief in this life and sometimes he gives us strength by his grace to endure. Annie Flint uh, was born in 1866. Her parents died when she was a small child Uh, She wasn't any older than five, and she spent most of her adult life crippled by arthritis and eventually completely blind, and it was in this condition, crippled with arthritis, literally unable to to get up and move, uh, and completely blind. It was in that condition that she wrote the following poem, and some of you may have heard it. The title is, "'He Giveth More Grace.'" And so this is a great poem in and of itself. I just want you to understand who wrote it and what state she was in as she wrote it and then understand how that applies to what we're talking about. Here's what she wrote. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father both thee and thy load will upbear. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. She wrote that unable to move, crippled by arthritis and blind. But that's where she was at. And so though we struggle and though we bring those things to the Lord, we need to understand that sometimes what he'll do is he'll, he'll bring relief to whatever that is uh, in that moment or after some time um, or sometimes what he does is increases our strength, provides what we need that we may persevere and endure. Um, and I think for some of us, we, we, we assume that's the worst option, right? Our first preference would always be, I have a problem whether I'd be struggling physically or spiritually. Best case scenario is God heal me, heals me right now um, because that would make the pain stop or that would make the, the agony of whatever spiritual struggle I'm going through stop. And, and I, just, I just want to submit to you that if she wrote this in the midst of that struggle, what kind of grace and joy had God, must God the Father have been pouring into her to be able to, to be in this place in the midst of that struggle? And so my, my point to you is God did not instantly relieve the things that were causing struggle for her, and I believe that was not only for his glory but for her best. Because what is most important? that our bodies function correctly or that every day we feel some sense of exuberance or that in the place where it really matters, in the deep wells of our heart, that we are fully satisfied and convinced of the goodness of God. And that we are able to exclaim what it is this poem exclaims, that even in the midst of hardship, he gives and gives and gives again. That he's to be trusted. To really believe that is the greatest treasure that a human can grab hold of. To really be in right standing with God and understand to the truest depth of our being that he is worthy to be trusted and worshipped even in the midst of our difficulty and sometimes because of the midst of our difficulty is the greatest treasure we can be given from God. It's not just the goodies we think that he has. It's not just what we think from our perception would make life better. Do we trust that what he does is right and best? And do we trust that he loves us? I think we should. I think he's done enough to prove that that's true. Like if he would have just stopped at the cross and resurrection, I think he's done enough to prove that that's true. We find ourselves now at at verses 4 and 5. Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness, for there is no mention of you in death. And Sheol, who will give you thanks? David feels the weight here of displeasing the Lord. There's some there's some discussion among those that that uh, study these things about what exactly David's frame of mind is and why he wrote these couple verses. Uh, what I think we're seeing here is is he feels the weight of displeasing the Lord, and it, it, I think it's causing him to question whether or not that God will forgive him and continue to love him. I think he's I think he's finding himself questioning even in the midst of asking for it. He starts talking about Sheol, and it doesn't seem like his his confidence is fully sure in in the fact that uh, God is going to be able to forgive him for whatever it is that he feels like he's receiving the Lord's chastisement for. Um, But even in the midst of that struggle, even in the midst of not being sure, we see him appealing to God's loving kindness. You see, he says, save me because of your loving kindness. And so David clearly has this understanding that that's that is the terms for which God's going to do anything for us, according to his loving-kindness, according to his mercy. He knows that he's in some degree done something uh, where he believes he's, he's garnered the discipline of the Lord, but, but he's asking for help. He's asking for relief. And he's not saying because I he's not saying, God, um, rescue me uh, because I took down Goliath. Right? He's not saying, God, rescue me because I obeyed you in the past when I wanted to kill Saul, but you told me not to. That was really hard not to do. I did that back then, God. You owe me. He's not coming to God like that. He, he does have need. He does find himself in a desperate place. Sounds like physically and spiritually. But he's calling out to God. He's saying, please rescue me according to your loving kindness. He knows he doesn't deserve it. And it's going to be an act of mercy from God uh, to answer him. And so that... I think should be instructive and helpful for us. Uh, David knew he was not worthy in and of himself to have God's blessing, and that he could not fix the problem himself. The language is key. He had to be rescued. You don't see, you don't see this as a man as confused about whether or not if he could just, if he could just white knuckle it, if he could just get himself together, he could he could raise up out of this difficulty and, and figure it out himself and make it happen, right? That's, that's not where he's at. He's using language of, God, rescue me. Rescue me according to your loving kindness. I'm in trouble. I'm sinking. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, and I need rescued. He knows where his help comes from, and he knows his limitation. He's asking to be rescued according to the kindness of God. Uh, Verse 5 can be a bit confusing, uh, and we're not going to camp on it real long, but I think what we need to do, I'll just read it again. For there is no mention of you in death in Sheol who will give you thanks. Um, Sheol is is roughly just kind of like the holding place of the dead. It's not real specifically hell necessarily. Again, there's some argument on that. That's why we're not going to take a whole lot of time on it. The statement for there's no mention of you in death That that can be kind of confusing. I think we need to view it in light of David's vantage point. We need to understand where he's at in the history of God's plan of redemption, right? We are, you know... God's created, God has called a people up through Abraham, right? And they've ended up in Egypt and they were called out of Egypt by Moses, right? And then, they're, then they, start, they broke up into tribes, got the judges, then they got the, hey, we want a king deal, right? We got Saul and now we're here at David. We're kind of in the, in the middle of the groove here of what all God is doing and heading up towards a plan of redemption that has culminated in bringing Christ on the scene. And so David does not yet have full benefit that we do of seeing Christ's finished work. We understand when he says things like lord rescue me according to your loving kindness. He understands an incredible amount really about how humans relate to God that it's going to be according to God's goodness and mercy that anybody has a chance to relate to God at all. So he gets that part, but there's also there had to be some murkiness there. There was this forward-looking hope and faith that God was going to be faithful to his promise to redeem his people and solve the problem of sin, but they didn't they didn't have all the pieces, right? So there's some murkiness Uh, About the details. Um, He doesn't have the details of all of God's plan of redemption that has been accomplished through the finished work of Christ. I think also just looking through the Old Testament as a whole, you'll see to some degree a murky understanding from time to time when it comes to eternity and kind of what that looks like. Again, I would would say that Jesus came and shined a light on many things when he walked on the earth uh, and he was preaching the hope of the kingdom. Uh, and, and nobody brought more clarity to the issue of heaven and hell than Jesus, right? If you think about it, uh, they were doing good to understand as much as they understood, right, by, by God's grace before Christ came. Christ came and set some things straight that, that were confusing, elaborated on some things that only somebody who had kind of been on the other side of eternity could talk about with authority, and so Jesus did. He came and explained more about heaven than anybody else, and, and also more about hell. And so, uh, i I think to some degree, we just got to understand from david 's vantage point he's he 's speaking as much as he has understanding about, uh, so of course, we understand now, because of Christ and his teaching and his finished work, that for somebody that has put faith in christ for them to to die for them for them to take their last breath to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord right so we know that that 's the case. Uh, we also know that tragically, for those that refuse to put faith in Christ um, and reject the free gift of grace that they will be separated from God for eternity, uh, which really bothers us. Which is why uh, we do as much as we can to let as many people as possible know there's hope in Jesus. Right, so that's what we're about. Amen. Amen. Um, it, it, I think. I think even in light of the fact that David probably had to somewhat a murky understanding of the details of eternity, and let's be honest, we still do too. Like like you, you understand. Surely you felt like you wished there was more details about heaven than we have, right? Like we have some stuff, we know some things about it. I think we know everything we need to know to like be excited about it. Ie Jesus is going to be there, right? I'm ready to party hat and, you know, shoot the shoot the what is that? Confetti popper already, right? Cuz if Jesus is going to be, that's where I want to be for eternity. The rest of the details are just kind of like, okay, cool. That's icing on the cake. Uh, I want to be with the, the King of Glory. Um, so we know what we what we need to know, but I would like to know more details about everything that's going to happen, how it's going to happen, and what it's going to look like. And, you know, we've got some, but not all. And there's also some ambiguity and difficulty in understanding the details about hell. Jesus, I think, told us what we needed to know to understand you don't want to be there primarily because you're going to be separated from the God that loves you so much uh, that he sent his son to die for you. So we know what we need to know, but not everything we'd like to know. I think it should be an encouragement to us that even with a more limited understanding than we now have, David was able to trust in the goodness and faithfulness of God, right? I think that should be an encouragement to us and and perhaps a little bit of a jab in the ribs, right? Because David, from his vantage point, like midway through God's story of redemption, is able to, in the midst of his struggle, and, and, he's, and he's being honest here, man. He's being raw, he, he's, and we're going to get to it. He, he's describing with, with some pretty intense language how hard of a time he's having, and yet, in the midst of this, he knows he can call out to God and appeal to his loving kindness. He knows that there is, there, there, it matters when he calls out to God, that God does love him and God will answer. And I think sometimes, friends, we're, we're way down the timeline as far as vantage point is concerned. Like, we are after Christ coming and explaining all that he did, then dying in our place, then rising from the grave, and then inspiring writers to tell us how to live in light of that. We've got a bunch more to work with than our buddy David did, and yet sometimes we struggle to even get as far as he got in trusting God that his loving kindness and mercy could be trusted, that he would hear us when we call, right? So let that be an encouragement to us, and let that also be a source of um, holy agitation. Amen. Amen. Verses 6 and 7. I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. You know what he's saying there, that he's crying so much, right? Like imagine a cartoon, he's got a paddle, his bed's floating around the room. That's, so we take the Bible literally where it's meant to be taken literally. David is not trying to convince us literally that he has enough fluids in his body to cry enough to make his room into a pool. He's just trying to explain in... in, in really descriptive, raw language, I'm having a super hard time. I'm crying a lot, right? Uh, he says, every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with tears. Um, he says, my eye has wasted away with grief. They're, they're, they're almost matted shut because he's, he's, he's just weeping so much. It, it has become old because of all my adversaries. So this is a brother that's struggling. And this is, I think, it's interesting for us to see here uh, how, how raw and how open he's willing to be about it, um, especially the guy that's like supposed to be the leader, right? He's supposed to be this spiritual guy, the, the people other people can look up to. Uh, he doesn't seem to be concerned about uh, letting people understand that he's sh- struggling. And I think, of course, that's, to some degree, it's because his willingness to be raw and open is wrapped in a, a trust in God's goodness and mercy, However, I think there's a temptation many times, um, especially those that are supposed to be leaders, to not be willing to let people see them struggle, uh, because that's somehow unspiritual, and and I don't think it is. Um, And we'll get to more of that in a minute. So here we see the raw confession of a man in in real despair. Uh, He's using very descriptive language to tell us he's having a seriously hard time. I think one key and one reason sometimes we don't feel like we can be honest with God is because sometimes we're not willing to be honest with ourselves. Uh, We are masters of self-deception. And much of the time when we're pulling the wool over other people's eyes or we think we are, it's not even intentional. Uh, The first person we tricked was ourselves. Uh, And it's important to be able to be honest with God, to be able to be raw with God. But first what we need to do is be willing to be honest with ourselves. Uh, many times, instead of dealing with painful issues directly, we find ways to cope with them instead, to just kind of hold them along, wrap them up, justify them in some way, or, or put a bow on it so that I don't have to actually deal with it. Uh, sometimes our suffering can seem so intense that we lose confidence in the Lord's ability to help us. Sometimes the struggle can be so difficult. Sometimes it's coming from so many angles. Sometimes it seems like the struggle is both internal and external. Sometimes it feels like it's coming so hard and so unrelenting that we get to the point where we we begin to doubt whether or not the Lord really is willing to or able to help us. That is when we begin to deny reality. Reality and we try to bury our pain instead of bringing it to Jesus and trusting in his power to either remove the pain right then or add to us the strength we need to persevere by his grace because he can help us either way, and both of those are for our good and for his glory. The longer we deny the existence of an issue and pretend it doesn't exist, the longer we will be held back from our true God-given potential. You want to talk about chains around the feet of a Christian. You want to be talking about someone being held down from what it is God has actually called them to do. Let somebody ignore or pretend or, or just stuff down, not deal with pain issues, sins they've committed, sins that other people have committed against them. Just try to hide all that stuff and package it in such a way that I don't have to actually deal with it. You will stay stuck. You will stay disgruntled. And you might be able to put on a mask long enough to trick some people, but if you let anybody in close enough to you to actually know you, you'll stop being able to trick even people, much less God. You're not tricking him, friends. So let's just make that plain. He knows it. He sees it. All of those things you're refusing to deal with. And so my encouragement to you would be the truth will set you free. Stop lying to yourself and stop lying to God. And stop lying to others that if you'd let them would care enough to walk with you as you uh, got rid of those burdens. There's people willing to love you and help you, but you gotta, you got to trust that the potential pain that comes with vulnerability is worth it. You weren't made to do this thing alone. I know it seems enticing. I know it seems like that would be easier many times. I know some of you have a stack of evidence that you would give me to, to convince me that, listen, letting people in close ends in pain let me tell you about what this person did and this person did and this person did. Friend, I understand. I get it. I've got my own list. I promise. But here's what I've come to understand. I don't have it all figured out, but I do know this. A life without love and real relationships where where I'm vulnerable vulnerable enough to be hurt uh, is a miserable life. And so yes, you open up and you let people in. Sometimes that's going to end up causing a scar. Um, But we need to understand that even those situations where Uh, somebody through sin or just being inconsiderate or not understanding hurts us. Those are are opportunities (laughs) for us to walk in the character of God. Has God had to forgive anything? About you? Yes. Have we ever trespassed against somebody either intentionally or unintentionally? Yes. And so... Actually, what happens is when we open ourselves up to that vulnerability and the inevitable thing happens that somebody hurts us or is inconsiderate, says something that is not totally thoughtful or does something, um, even if it's malicious. Sometimes we we think what we're doing is guarding ourselves and insulating ourselves from the potential of pain when really what we're doing is just retreating further and further into a, a darkness and an existence that is miserable and we think we're protecting ourselves. But what happens is when we open up and we do let other people in, Yes, it creates the potential for pain, but it also creates the potential for love. And that trade-off is worth it. And and some of you, it's going to take time in the work of the Holy Spirit to convince you of that because um, you would tell me you've tried that and and it didn't work well, it didn't go well for you. Um, And I would just say to you, uh, I know. And I get it. And I would be tempted to agree if the word was not true and it hadn't proven itself true to me. So I get it, and I'm not trying to trivialize your struggle. Um, But we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be honest with God. We need to be honest with others, or we're going to have a hard way. Many times what we're doing is we are dragging a bag of struggles behind us. We think that if we throw it in the bag where we don't have to look at it, then we're better off. If it's behind us, even though I'm pulling it, it's, it's a weight. At least I'm not looking at it. The truth is that that bag gets heavier and harder to pull with every item that we shove in it instead of surrendering it to Jesus. And ultimately, you'll get to the point where you will be leaning all of your strength and weight into that thing, trying to pull, and you will be flat stuck, not able to move. And then you've got a big bag of stuff to deal with uh, instead of having dealt with it one, one thing at a time. And that will be more complicated. That will be more difficult. And that's why I'm trying to warn you against it. Please don't do that. Don't just throw issues, offenses, concerns, your own sins, other people's sins, into this bag and think, I'll just drag it behind me and I don't have to look at it. At some point, that's going to catch up, friend. It's going to get too heavy to pull. Thank, thankfully, by God's grace and his strength, even when we find ourselves in that situation, he can lead us through a process of unpacking that thing and dealing with it and getting rid of it. Uh, but it is harder and does take longer than if, at the beginning, when things come, when an offense comes, we're quick to forgive. Um, when it's brought to our attention that we are sinning in this way, we repent and deal with it now instead of just, eh, I'm going to deal with that later. I'm, I'm too busy doing my thing. Um, and, and I would say to you that if you are dragging heavy burdens today, Jesus wants to lighten your load, uh, but you have to be really, really willing to trust, uh, to really, truly trust that he wants to and is able to help you. That's what it comes down to. Um, I, some of you have been on the receiving end of this, and and I hope that you can believe me when I tell you it's not a trite answer, and it's not just trivializing the depth of of some people's struggles. Almost invariably, if I am attempting by God's grace to walk with somebody through a difficult situation, I will end up summarizing the situation in, in one phrase, and that's, will you trust God? And sometimes I know people think I, I just I'm not really understanding what they're saying, or I'm not um, caring as much as I should when I ask that. And I promise I am. It's just it's just literally the right question for whatever it is you're struggling with. At the we can't really work on anything until we get that first question answer. Are you willing to trust God? Because it's going to take His help to deal with whatever it is we're trying to deal with. Healing's only going to come if we're willing to trust Him by faith? Will you trust the Lord? We can talk about more than that, but we're at least going to talk about that. Verses 8 through 10. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. It's, it's interesting in the midst of one psalm how David goes through this process of back and forth. He starts out asking for God's grace um, as he chastises and disciplines him, and then he, you see this hint of him not totally being sure. He's talking about Sheol and death, and, and he, that's even in the midst of God. Please, you know, um, save me, rescue me by your loving kindness, but, but you can see this little bit of uncertainty in the, in the midst of that, uh, this walking gently, but even... As he goes through and he's, and he's describing the depth of the struggle, then, then we come to the end of the psalm. And it's, it's almost like, even as it's, it's almost the, the therapy of getting that out and being honest and telling the Lord where he's really at and, and not feeling cast away from God. It's, it's like by the end of the psalm, just a few lines later, he's able to speak with this courageous confidence and, and give us these last few statements. He, he's saying, The Lord has heard my supplication. He He receives my prayer, and so he understands that this this declaration of of intense need for God, this asking of God to rescue him according to his loving kindness, it will be answered. He knows that God is faithful. He's able to trust it. And so that that would be further evidence, friends, um, that I would present to you. Of the value of being honest with yourself and being honest with God and being honest with others. There's a transition where verses four and five, he's talking about nobody, you know, nobody's uh, (laughs) mentioning you in death uh, and Sheol who will give you thanks. It's pretty dark. It's pretty like you don't really know where he's at. Fully, uh, as far as his mental place. And then, you know, two more verses, right? We're at 6 and 7, and he's saying, "I'm, I'm making my bed float at night. I'm dissolving couches with my tears. My eyes are matted shut. I am so full of grief, and I am so full of mourning. Um... And then, and then just the next verse, just in going through that process of being honest with God. And, and I believe to some degree in being honest with God and not finding himself cast away as is sometimes often our fear. Sometimes we think if I'm honest with myself and then I'm honest with God and then I'm honest with people, what's going to happen is I'm going to be cast away. But David goes through that process. He feels instead of being cast away from the God who loves him, being drawn in close to him. And you, feel, you can see, you can, you can hear it in the, in the, the construction of the this psalm the confidence come and he's pulled close to the master and you you feel it you can you can you can perceive it here that uh, by the end of the psalm is, is different than the middle and it's not a very long one it didn't take much time you feel God's warm embrace and, and his love showering over David and giving him the confidence to say you know what the Lord has heard my voice of weeping, the Lord has heard my supplication, and I know he's going to receive my prayer. And we know that this isn't because David knocked down Goliath, and we know that that's not what he thinks, because he spends the whole first part of the psalm saying, God, please, by your graciousness, deal with me. Rescue me according to your loving kindness." I understand David didn't have the full totality of the gospel that we have, but this brother understood to some degree how it was he had any chance of relating to the God of the universe. He knew it was going to be on his terms and because of his goodness, not because of anything he had to bring. And that to me is amazing. And and I'm also convicted because sometimes I can forget that even with all the extra information I have. And that's that's a convicting and helpful thing to understand all at once. Even when describing despair and struggle in an honest way, David still declares his trust in the faithfulness of God. One of the most powerful lessons that we learn from the Psalms is that it is not a sin to struggle. I think, unfortunately, many people treat it as it is. Um, Being honest is not a lack of faith, Uh, and actually, it's a sin to not be honest. That one's pretty clear. I read that somewhere. Do not lie. It's in a list. What is that list? Oh, the Ten Commandments. Those are big, right? (laughs) Quit lying to yourself. Quit lying to others. Quit lying to God, man. Um, But one of the most powerful lessons we learn by going through this is that it is not a sin to struggle, but we also learn that uh, the only way our struggles don't lead to our destruction is if we have anchors of truth to which we cling. I want to say that again because it's key, and then I'm going to qualify it first of all, a powerful lesson we learn from the Psalms is that it is not a sin to struggle, but also we learn that the only way our struggles don't lead to our destruction is if we have anchors of truth to which we cling. Here's my question, friends. Let's think about this for a second. Because sometimes what we do... So I'm, I'm trying to encourage you towards honesty. I'm trying to encourage you towards not lying to yourself. Let's not self-deceive. Let's not try to deceive others. Let's be raw. Let's be open. But we can also overcorrect, and we can stay in the, I'm making my bed swim, and I'm dissolving my couch, and feel somehow because we've been honest, then we're justified to just then wallow there in the pity. The, 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 the rhythm of the Psalms, and what we see here is, it's not a sin to struggle. It's not a sin to be honest. But you also can't be a perma eor right? We need to be honest, and we need to say how it is we're feeling, but we have to have anchors for our soul that we can return and end those prayers with. God, I'm struggling. God, I don't know what to do. God, I feel lost. God, I feel broken. God, I feel dry, and I'm empty. I feel betrayed. God, I'm struggling, but if nothing else, I'm confident that you hear me, and I know that you love me, and you've proved that you're faithful, right? And so when we just are honest or we just bring our complaints or we're not we don't have anchors for our soul that even if I don't feel it right in the moment right like sometimes I'm going to have to pray things that I don't necessarily feel right at the second I might be in the midst of darkness and despair and struggle. From my perspective, my vantage point, I might not be able to see any way out of how it is God's going to make something happen, but Philippians tells me that I can have peace that surpasses understanding and I have to have anchor points for my soul that no matter what, no matter how hard the waves are blowing against the ship of my life, I am anchored to something that will not move. We have to have those. And if we don't, then... uh, Our struggles will lead to our destruction. We will just keep melting couches and making beds swim. We will just stay in a place of despair. And uh, that will render us useless for God's glory and it will only drive us further into darkness and misery. And so there's there's two ways to end up in trouble. One is to deny it. Don't be honest. Try to cope instead of bring it out into the light and, and let God and others help you deal with it. The other way is to Be honest, acknowledge sin and struggles and difficulty, but not also acknowledge God's goodness and faithfulness and all of the reasons we have for hope because of him. Sin is not struggle, and it doesn't have to destroy us as long as we are anchored into the solid rock of Christ. I want to read to you 1 John 5.13 along these lines. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we ask from him. Listen, man, David didn't have the book of 1 John, but somehow that brother in his dealings with God Almighty was able to declare with confidence, even in the midst of a struggle so bad, his beds floating around his room from his tears, he says, I know the Lord has heard my supplication and I know he's going to receive my prayer." And that comes from walking with the Lord in a real and intimate way. David had an anchor point for his soul. Even though everything he could see looked like it was going to lead to his destruction, he knew God is hearing this prayer and he's receiving this prayer. And because he's good and loving and powerful, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. Friends, we have one John. We have the promise. If, if, we couldn't, if we couldn't pull that principle from the life and, the, and the, the writings of David here, then we have it spelled out for us plainly, this is the promise of God. This is the confidence we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Friend, how much does it matter to you? How much do you spend time in gratitude? Do you, it, 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 are you able to pray to God without, thank, without thanking him for the fact that you got to pray? I, I almost can't. And there's very few things where I would stand here and want to toot my horn in front of you about how yay, yay Christian, but here's the bottom line. One thing I do get, one thing I do understand, one thing I'm still blown away by is that anytime I want to, not because I'm worthy, because I'm not, not because I have something inside of me or that I was able to offer to God, there's nothing that's that from my life that would I could bring to God and say, here, here's evidence that I deserve to be allowed an audience with you, the God who spoke and created everything. I know it is solely and only because of the grace and mercy and the finished work of Christ upon his cross, the fact that he defeated death on my behalf and washed me clean by his precious blood, that I'm able to stand righteous, received by God as a son, and that I can stop right now if I want to, and I can address the heavenly Father, and he will hear me. Friends, are we thankful for the privilege of prayer? Do we understand how incredible it is that he would receive our needs, that he would receive our praise even, that there has is, there is been a way made <laughs> that there is not such a division between us that we could not communicate. The very fact that we were able to come before him, we received his sons and daughters, um, is, that, that's an anchor, friends. In the midst of your despair, in the midst of you crying out to God about your struggle, in the midst of you being honest with him and really telling him how it is you feel, how it is you're struggling, how dark it seems from your perspective, even in the midst of that, friend, I'm going to ask you to follow the pattern of David and still, even in there, in the midst of that honest description of your struggle, also make sure to declare those anchor points that you understand. Yes, I'm struggling. Yes, I don't see a way. But you are God. God and you've proven you're powerful, and you've proven you're loving, and you've proven you're merciful, and you've promised to hear me. And so because of that, I will not let this despair take me to destruction. I am struggling, but this will not end me. I'm pressed but not crushed. I'm persecuted, but I am not abandoned. I'm struck down, but I will not be destroyed. And it's not because I'm tough. It's because you're God. And you don't fail. You're faithful. Praise God. Friends, the gospel is our never-failing anchor, isn't it? Isn't the power of the gospel our never-failing anchor? Isn't it the fact that we, wretched and completely undeserving, were given the gift of salvation and redemption and reconciliation through Christ? The fact that God would send his son to come and live the perfect life we couldn't in our place, and then he would die the death that we deserved in our place, and he would rise again, breaking the back of sin and death so that we had to fear it no longer. And then he would take us, and he would take all of our rags, let us lay them down at his feet, and he would take the the beautiful white robe of righteousness and he would drape it across our shoulders and allow us to wear it completely unearned, only as a, a, a sign of the favor, grace, and mercy that we did not deserve, that he would allow us audience with him, that he would call you daughter or son based on absolutely nothing you were able to accomplish in and of yourself, but on on the love and the mercy and the grace that he poured forth. The gospel is our never-changing anchor point. And that's what I'm saying, friends. There are many reasons and there are many ways right now for each of us that if we were not careful, despair could pull us down into a never-ending darkness. There are many ways we could choose to just let hopelessness completely overtake us and be completely undone, that it could lead to our full destruction. And what I'm asking you to see is that as you, as you, as you struggle for uh, understanding where the anchor points are, that, that the gospel is the one that, that it should be easiest for us to see, the very fact that we have a consciousness of God's goodness, the very fact that his word has told us that he will have us, that he will receive us, that he will treat us in any way other than his kindling, right, which is about what we deserve. The fact that instead he's been merciful to us, that he's called us his own that he's made a way for us to be with him. The gospel is our never-changing, never-ending, incredibly powerful anchor point. And so, yes, let's be honest. Yes, let's tell the truth. Let's not lie to ourselves. Let's not try to lie to God. That never works. And let's stop lying to others. Let's be honest about when we're struggling. But let's not let that conversation end with, all is bad, all is destruction, there is no hope. Let us always... Come back around and realize, even if it's only for our own sake, let's let it come out of our mouths. Yes, I'm struggling. Yes, I don't know what to do. Yes, I'm having a hard time. Yes, I feel like, like, I feel hopeless. It only looks dark. And that's the problem. We don't, we don't walk by sight, man. We walk by faith. And sometimes that's what it's going to take. Sometimes for you to say what I'm saying, for you to say, yes, I'm struggling, and I don't even see how it's possible that this could get better. Sometimes all you're going to have, that anchor point is going to be only and because of the faith that you've been given as a gift from God the Father. You may not see it. You may not see the reason to end the prayer with, but God, I'm going to hope in you. But God, I trust you. But God, I know you're faithful. It may be that way a lot. But let us still end our prayers that way because he's given us enough proof. He's given us enough evidence that he's good and powerful, that he's loving and faithful. Amen? Amen? Amen. May we be a people who embrace the discipline of our Heavenly Father, knowing it is proof that we are truly his. May we be a people who are not afraid to be honest, both with ourselves and with Jesus. And may we be a people who are not brought to destruction when we struggle, because our hope is anchored in the truth of the glorious gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. First Lord, we just want to thank you that that's possible. Sometimes, Lord, we do it so often before we eat and before we sleep and when we wake up. Sometimes the fact that we are able to come to you, um, it, it just it misses us, Lord. The fact that it is an absolute wonder and a result of the of beauty and the truth and the power of the gospel. That it is not something that is just a given. Uh, it's not something that just uh, had to be. It's something that you made possible. It's evidence, Of your faithfulness, it's evidence uh, that you are committed to the plan of redemption. It's evidence that you are going to finish what you've started, and that you're going to have us with you forever. And I'm thankful that that's true. Thank you for prayer. Thank you that we get to be your people. Thank you that you're a father that disciplines us. Thank you that you're not an absentee, indifferent father. Thank you, Lord, that you're uh, you didn't just set all these things into motion. You didn't just kind of. Set the world up, give it a spin, and walk away and leave us to ourselves. But you are intimately involved with every single part of our lives, that you care about the details, that you're walking with us, leading and guiding us by your precious Holy Spirit. Thank you. That you deal with us. Thank you that you discipline us. I thank you that you get angry because it proves to me that you love me. I thank you that you get angry at me sometimes, but that you love me and you chastise me and you discipline me and you draw me back into the fold. I thank you that sometimes you are angry at at, at what's going on in the world at large, because it proves to me that you love and care for all that you've created. Thank you. I'm glad that you're not indifferent. I'm glad that sometimes you're angry. It proves to me that you're loving. I thank you also that that you made a way that your anger could be satisfied, that your justice is satisfied upon the cross of Christ. I thank you that mercy and justice were able to kiss at the cross and that both were satisfied and both are equal realities. Help us, Lord Jesus, to understand that and live in light of it. Lord, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to be honest with you, with ourselves and with others. Sometimes it's hard. Lord, a lot of us have spent a lot of time getting good at shoving stuff in the bag and not dealing with it, at, at pushing it down or, or justifying in our minds somehow or coming up with a way that we don't have to deal with the issue. And God, I just ask that you would help us. I ask that you would discipline us when we're tempted to do that. I ask that you would bring it out into the open. Please help us, God. Because we don't want to be held back from what it is you've made us to do. We know that we are not our own. We know that we've been bought with a price. And God, this is not something that we're upset about. We rejoice greatly in the fact that we are not our own. And so, Lord, we don't want our sins or, or the sins of others, unforgiveness, or any of the other baggage we, we're dragging along with us. We don't want us to slow us down. We know there's a job to do. We know this isn't just about us and our own personal sense of happiness. We know, God, that you've saved us to a purpose and a mission, and that is to spread the glorious good news of the beautiful gospel to let as many people as possible know they don't have to live in the misery of separation from you, the God who loves them and made them. And so, God, please, anything in our lives that would hold us back from the full potential you've made us for, from from letting our gifts flow in the body of Christ uh, for the sake of of pushing forward and growing your kingdom and, and, and opening the doors wide to as many people as possible. God, we ask you would come and remove those things. Take absolutely anything, that would hold us back from doing what you made us to do out of us and replace it with something that you can use. We submit ourselves underneath your mighty hand and we ask you to do as you see fit. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you're a good father. All of our trust and hope is in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church located in Cincinnati, Ohio.